This week, Narcan will become available at retail pharmacy chains like CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart. It's a nasal spray that reverses the effects of an opioid overdose, and it works very quickly. Now, it's five times faster than the approximately 10-minute average wait time for EMT services. The majority of deaths caused by opioid overdose in Illinois occur in Cook County, where overdose deaths have broken records yearly since 2019. But overdoses have increased across all areas in the state, rural, urban, and suburban, during that period. That's according to the Illinois Department of Public Health. So here to discuss the current state of the opioid crisis in our area and the news about Narcan is Fania Burford-Berry, Director of Westside Heroin and Opioid Task Force. Welcome, Fania. Hello, how are you? Doing well. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me. Also with us, Chelsea Laliberté-Barnes, founder and co-chair of the Illinois Harm Reduction and Recovery Coalition. Thanks for joining us, Chelsea. I'm happy to be here. And John Werning, executive director of Chicago Recovery Alliance. Good to have you, John. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. I'll start with you, John. What is Narcan and uh, how does it work to reverse the effects of an overdose? Let's start there. Yeah, Narcan is kind of a miracle drug. Um, so it's an opioid antagonist. So if somebody who has taken opioids uh, is then, uh, if Narcan is administered, it essentially blocks the opioids off of the uh, brain receptors um, and it restores functionality like breathing, which which if somebody is going through an overdose crisis from uh, opioids, um, it'll, it'll restore that functionality and, uh, and it'll keep them alive. Any side effects or, or risks? associated with using it uh no very minimal it's a it's an extremely safe drug um it's been uh we've had it i think since um the 1950s or somewhere around there so uh it's very minimal side effects if any and can it be used in a preventative circumstance like before you anticipate an overdose um it, it is best if if uh people use it when an overdose uh is uh, when people suspect an overdose is uh is happening so um if if a person hasn't used uh opioids and you know naloxone or narcan is administered um almost nothing would happen and narcan it's a brand name for the overdose reversal drug naloxone which is also available as an injectable so to clear up any confusion, just tell us, is there a difference between Narcan and Naloxone? Yeah, Narcan is going to be a different formulation. So it ha it's actually like a, a bit of a higher dosage than, than the, um, the brand name Naloxone, at least the, the intramuscular that the, the Chicago Recovery Alliance uses. So it's going to be a little bit higher of a dosage of Naloxone, um, but also it's administered nasally as opposed to injected. Um, and there, there are a few different formulations and, and a few different formats of, of naloxone out there, but um, Narcan is by far the most, um, the, the easiest, one of the easiest to use and the most well-known. So, Fania, let's bring you in here. Uh, talk about some of the signs and symptoms that someone's experiencing uh, when they are uh, having an opioid overdose. What does that look like? Yeah. Yes, shallow breathing. Their um, pupils are pinpoint or very small. Their lips are bluish. Their fingertips are bluish. Um, they, you can just tell that they are just, like, sleepy or just, like, they're just overcome with um, just, like, they're just not breathing. And so that is when you say, I think we're seeing signs of an overdose. And then you administer a test where you rub with your fist the sternum really hard to see if someone is experiencing an overdose. Describe how we would administer the nasal spray. Oh, 
basically you would, if they're sitting up, you just keep them in the chair that they're sitting in, and you just um, put, take out the dose, the nasal spray. You just um, put up their nose, up their nose really quick, spray one dose um, it's in the nasal spray. Then you wait about one to two minutes to see if they have revived. If not, then administer the second dose and the other nasal passage. Um, one thing we know about the black and brown community is um, that the black and brown community, people have a tendency to snort or to smoke um, their drugs. And so sometimes the nasal passages are not as um, healthy as they need to be. Oh, that's good to know. Okay. Yes. And if they're on the ground, then you then put them in the rescue position to make sure everything is clear. So you like roll them on their side, you administer the dose, and you wait again uh, two to three minutes, and then you administer the second dose. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, un- until they're revived. And, and what does that look like? Are they, do they start coughing? Um, what happens? So, well, it all depends on what is in their system, right? So some people actually, if there's, you know, if it's just straight up opioids, they, they, they like, are, they bolt up and they're fast, they're quick, like, and, you know, they feel like their their um, high is gone, their, um, their use is gone. But actually, as John said, it really just blocks, um, Narcan just blocks the opioid from going into their receptors, right? Or it could be when I did a revival of an overdose dose, um, it was very slow. Like the the person um, 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 needed some agitation, where you sort of like hit them, and I was able to. Uh, um, at once we administered the first dose, I was he woke up, but he was still sort of foggy. I was able to get his name, and then like, hey, how are you doing? He would speak, and then he would go right back into mm. um, shallow breathing, and then we administered the second dose, and the um, EMTs were there. But it all depends on what is else is in the person's system because we have found out that um, um, when a person is has an opioid disorder, most likely they are probably a um, poly abuse or poly usage, meaning that they're probably under influence of something else, such as alcohol or mm, I see. Uh, some other substance. Yes. Wow, Chelsea, let's bring you in here and talk about the the news this week. As I mentioned, Narcan is now going to become available at, at pharmacies like CVS and Walgreens, et cetera, without a prescription. Who will benefit from having that kind of access? Yeah, this is this is this is great news. I mean, I think we we know that people who are able to afford the forty four dollar Narcan yeah. product are going to be able to access it, right? And yeah. and I think in the state of Illinois, we've taken steps to make sure that if people need to use their insurance, they they absolutely can if they'd rather get it through the pharmacist prescribed mode because we don't want people to be um, iced out from the ability to access it. So I think that the cost is is a is can be a barrier, right? Forty four dollars is not not cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's two doses in that box, which is which is which is great because you know we're we're dealing with some pretty high potency substances due to the contamination of most of our drug supply with fentanyl and xylazine and, and other and other types of contaminants. So we're thinking people who can afford it are going to get it that way. But we want to make sure that I think people that. Uh, folks out there understand that there are health departments, harm reduction organizations like the West Side Heroin Opioid Task Force, Chicago Recovery Alliance, um, and many, many, many others out there who can also provide it um, for free or through a grant program um, to folks who, who just aren't in the position to be able to pay for that. Yeah. Paint that picture for us again, John. Uh, we talked earlier about uh, 
according to the Illinois Department of Public Health, opioid overdoses are up, right? They've increased since 2019 all across the state. So who exactly is being impacted by the crisis? Well, I mean, um, uh, you know, people people are it's affecting populations across all different all demographics all different you know all areas across chicagoland i would say that the one caveat there is that the disproportionate effect of course is um you know the the folks who feel you know the worst outcomes or see the worst outcomes uh, which include death is going to be disproportionately marginalized communities so um black and brown communities people of color lgbtq um, it, they're really going to see a higher, um, um, a, a, a disproportionate representation amongst those groups. But but it, it does, you know, um, overdose affects all communities. Fania, let's talk more about access. I mean, who should have access to Narcan, would you say? And, and how do you expect it's, now that it's available over the counter, how is that going to impact your work? Everyone should have access to Narcan. Um, because um, opioids are everywhere, you know, because of the fact that um, it has been unleashed on our population, you know, um, and we were recently interviewed by The Guardian. Uh, one of the writers said, this is a uniquely American um, crisis, the opioid crisis. So everyone actually should have access to Narcan. And my total belief, it should just be free across the board. No one should have to pay for a life-saving drug um, that to me is immoral. And so, um, um, and so uh, I just feel like we, it won't change our work. We will continue to advocate and, you know, for it to be free, accessible to everyone mm-hmm. who wants it and needs it because it is just, it's such a, a powerful drug. And what we want to do is save lives so that people can um, figure out what they want and need and be fulfilled in their lives. And so that is what we, yeah. that's what our mission is, is saving lives. Chelsea, you briefly mentioned fentanyl earlier. Uh, 91% of overdose deaths in Cook County last year involved the potent synthetic opioid fentanyl. Uh, it's, it's 50 times stronger than heroin and 100 times stronger than morphine. What do folks listening need to know about the prevalence of fentanyl and, and how can they protect themselves or, or the people they love? Yeah, this is such an important question. Um, so I think what we're seeing, and, and when I say we, I think I can include CRA in that conversation. I mean, a lot of our harm reduction programs include really expansive drug checking programs where we have machines that actually tell us what is in the, the supply that an individual is using. Mm-hmm. And um, folks, we also know that we have such a thing called fentanyl test strips. We have we have um, xylazine test strips. We have benzodiazepine test strips. And these are all contaminants that could be found in any given uh, supply that somebody may be purchasing on the street. So even if you are somebody who may use cocaine at a party a couple times a year, there is a chance that your uh, product could it could have fentanyl in it. And so it's super duper important that people understand that they can access these test strips, they can access drug checking services, and that it's incredibly important that we do because um, you just don't know what you're getting. And especially if you have a, a person who has a low tolerance, you know, your likelihood of being able to survive a fentanyl-laced um, uh, pill or, or um, 
or a substance, you know, that's, that's a, that's a scary, that's a scary situation. So we really encourage people to carry test strips with them. They can get them through any harm reduction organization out there and many health departments as well. And that we do what we can from a legislative standpoint to invest and continued drug checking services and robust harm reduction services. Because frankly, I mean, if, if, if you don't have access to these types of, of uh, supplies like Narcan, fentanyl test strips, clean needles and clean using supplies, and eventually, hopefully, overdose prevention sites, it is going to be very, very difficult to survive. And we just want people, we, we just want to save lives. That's really what this is about, public health. Chelsea, sticking with you here, you said, you know, we just want to save lives. It makes me want to zoom in on the term harm reduction, right? Because that's just it's just one strategy in this fight to end the opioid uh, overdose crisis. Others include prevention efforts and treatment, as well as recovery support. Just explain that concept of harm reduction for us and, and how it fits into that larger goal that you just talked about. Sure. So harm reduction, we, we have um, Chicago Recovery Alliance to thank for sort of helping us define what this looks like. Harm reduction really is just Um, radical love. It's the ability to save someone's life, to keep them alive, and to do what we can to reduce their risk. And it doesn't include abstinence. It includes reduced use. It includes ceasing use. It includes, um, you know, continuing to use and using all the safety tools you possibly have if you're going to continue using. And so we want to meet everybody where they're at. And so harm reduction is a public health concept when it comes to drug use or other risky behaviors like domestic violence, like non-suicidal self-injury, like suicide prevention. I mean, COVID, look at COVID. It's a great example of how we utilize harm reduction in a really robust way by providing treatment, by providing vaccines, by providing um, supplies for people to reduce the contamination, to reduce the spreading mm-hmm. of COVID. And we're really just doing the, the same thing here to reduce hepatitis to see HIV overdose deaths and other harms like abscesses and wounds and things like that. So harm reduction traditionally has not had the full investment that it needs. Yes, it is one strategy, but harm reduction really should be um, melded into every single other strategy that we think about when we talk about preventing um, drug use and preventing overdose from primary prevention all the way down to overdose prevention, treatment, recovery, supports. It's not one thing or another thing. It is very comprehensive and broad, but it has not had the, um, the, uh, the, the, the investment due to stigma around it and myths um, that um, it really has, it really deserves and it really is. It's data, it's science, it's love. John, what would you say are the, the most effective interventions for preventing overdose? Oh, man. Well, and following off of Chelsea's phenomenal answer, um, I, I mean, I would just mimic a lot of what of what Chelsea said. I mean, we we have we have evidence based programming that works in this country. I think one of the problems is, is that we we've really focused entirely off of um, one or two. And, and treatment is important. It's part of the process. Right. And, and, and you know, part of the population will, will want that and, and seek it. And, and me as a harm reductionist, it's my job to make sure that we break down those barriers and make sure that people have access to services. But the the fact of the matter is that folks just don't have access to, to resources, including treatment in this country. It's 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 pretty abysmal the infrastructure, you know, that we that you know we haven't invested in, um, you know, in order to get people. So individualized, robust, um, person-centered, you know, uh, trauma-informed social services are probably going to be the most effective uh, way to reduce opioid overdoses uh, in this country. And and we just haven't invested in any of those resources, um, not not even close. 
Fania, your thoughts? I mean, are, are what are the barriers that you face when implementing harm reduction strategies? I think actually it's stigma, right? It is like, like I'm a person in recovery and people who are, there's a lot more people in recovery, but because they are stigmatized by their own use, what they went through, they don't share their stories of like, of, of treatment, of recovery, of this is what worked for me, this what didn't work for me. We need to have people who are in recovery, people who have who actually use less, maybe still use, but use less, and that these are the things that work for me. We just need to be honest mm-hmm. in, in conversations with each other. And this is how we begin to have better treatment, better care for people who use drugs. If we start talking honestly about it, the anonymous movement that has taken over and we've all entered into um, these systems through the, you know, Alcoholic Anonymous or Narcotic Anonymous, all the announcements, it's sort of been helpful, but it's also been a detriment to um, us understanding stigma and, and letting, like, Everybody has issues. Everybody has problems. And there is a way that we can cope and work together and and show love to each other in in different ways versus, like, just don't talk about something that that majorly affected your life. We need to talk about it. We need to, you know, have conversations and be transparent about the issues. You wouldn't say to a person that's diabetic, oh, don't talk about your diabetes. No, we need to talk about right. um, things that harm and hurt us and how, we, how we've how we made it um, overcome. Yeah. Well, Chelsea, let mm-hmm. me leave, leave us with this. I mean, how do you reach families and, and loved ones of people at risk of opioid overdose in, in order to engage them in, in harm reduction efforts? You know, to, to Sonia's point, I mean, I think when, when my family and I started talking about my own brother's overdose death, we, we decided that we were going to share the story. We were going to talk about what we missed, what we didn't know, what, what we needed that we didn't have. And by doing that uh, 15 years ago, um, I think people felt connected to that and said, oh, okay, I'm going through this. I'm not alone. There's somebody else out there who, who recognizes that, that it's okay to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to connect with people. If people don't feel invited, if they don't feel like they can talk about what's, what's troubling them or what they're struggling with and are in, in America today, um, or, or that there's a resource for them, or that they know that if they, that if they ask for help, that they can trust that they will get it, why would they do it? And I think we're, we're taking a look at this and we're saying to people, you know, tell your story, reach out, join, a, you know, join one of our organizations, volunteer, come advocate in Springfield. Great. Yeah, we're, we're saying all those things, but we're also, we, we also need to back it up with using data-driven strategies. And I think, unfortunately, in this country, we have failed in our ability to deliver essential, quality, comprehensive health care, as John was saying earlier. Yeah. And we, we, as much, and, as mu- and this is the truth, as much as we are trying to reduce stigma, we, we just haven't been able to get away from that conversation that abstinence is the only answer. And until we do that, until we meet people where they're at and tell them wherever you are is where you are and we're here to accept and support you and with compassion and no judgment, we are not going to get people to, to raise their hand and say, I'm struggling. So yeah. we have to do a better job across the board in this country within all of our systems of reimagining what this needs to look like.
We'll leave it there. Chelsea LaLiberté Barnes is founder and co-chair of Illinois Harm Reduction and Recovery Coalition. Fania Burford-Berry is director of Westside Heroin and Opioid Task Force. And John Werning is executive director of Chicago Recovery Alliance. Thank you all. 